Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series, Power and Weakness. So turn to your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 11 to 15, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Genuine Salvation. Proverbs 27, verse 6, I think, well, it's a passage we should all commit to memory. I say that because if you remember it, it will help you identify who truly is your friend and who is your enemy. See, Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. You know, the difference between a friend and an enemy is that an enemy will praise you to your face and condemn you when your back is turned. Here's a bit of wisdom. If you haven't yet comprehended this, listen up. If you know someone who criticizes people in your presence, you can be pretty assured that they're doing the same about you when you're not there. Take that to the bank. You know, today I'm ending my study of 2 Corinthians chapters 1 to 7. We call this series Power and Weakness. And we've seen Paul in his weakest and most vulnerable place, and yet we have seen how God was at work. And we're going to see as we study our passage today that Paul comes to a place in which he acknowledges that the church that has wounded him so deeply is still a genuine church. It's a church of our Savior. And I say this because of the way in which the end of chapter 7 reads. For this was a church after they had been shown the error of their ways, genuinely repented, And Paul, for his part, rushed in to defend them and to encourage them and even to boast about them. And what we will find is not just the attitude of a man who is genuinely a friend of this church, but we'll also find is a picture of what genuine salvation looks like. So please remember that in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul urges the Corinthians and us to examine ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. And what we'll find in our text today are the marks of a genuinely converted man or a woman, and of course, the marks also of a genuinely Christian church. So let's begin by remembering 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. There Paul wrote, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You know, Paul's been confronting the sin that's in the Corinthian church. He did it in 1 Corinthians, and then he followed that up with a painful visit to Corinth, which, as you remember in our study, ended up with people hurling accusations against Paul. Then Paul wrote a painful letter and sent it by way of Titus. Now sitting with Titus, talking about how it all went down, Paul has time to reflect on all the events that have happened in the church in Corinth. You know, 2 Corinthians is Paul's final letter to this church, and it really does bring matters to a wonderful conclusion. That's because Titus has come back from Corinth and reported a genuine revival. The church has repented. Evil was dealt with, and there was a renewed spirit of holiness. And so 2 Corinthians is Paul's response to the developments that have been reported to him by Titus. There's been a godly grief in Corinth. Life is springing up everywhere. So let's read 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. 
At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So what's Paul talking about? Well, Paul, from the report that was given to him by Titus, points out seven characteristics that he knows point to the genuine nature of the Christian faith. I think it's very worthwhile to examine all seven of these, and as we do, let's view these seven as genuine characteristics of everyone who has been born again. Notice the first of them. What earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. You know, other translations say, what diligence there's been when the Corinthians finally came to terms with their sin, a response of seriousness. They, they didn't slough the matter off. I suppose we could, in order to understand the word that Paul is using, think of the, the opposite of earnestness, and that would be lethargy, or simply, I guess, ignoring the problem. Now, at one point in time, the Corinthian church was very close to falling into that very attitude. 1 Corinthians 5, the church was tolerating a man who was sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother. Uh, the response of the church was arrogance. They were simply going to tolerate sin and take no action, refuse to take the counsel of Jesus from Matthew 18, simply ignore what was going on. But now that Paul has shown them how sinful it is for a local church not to demand purity of its members somehow, and and I'm assuming that this was contained in, in Paul's painful letter, that's the one that we don't have, but the response was transformative. Something changed in the hearts of the people of that church. They became earnest, diligent, very serious about this matter of unchecked sin. See, all believers, when they see something as a command from God, will eventually come to the same conclusion. When genuine godly sorrow for sin is present, there is a diligence that leads to change. And now the second characteristic is what Paul calls what eagerness to clear yourselves. The Greek word is the word apologia, from which we you know, now get our word apologetics or a defense of the faith. But, but here, Paul uses the term to describe an attitude seeking to clear themselves before God. The leadership and most of the people in the church were keenly interested in the answer to the question, if we have done wrong, what do we need to do to restore our communion with God? Let's confess our sins. Let's change our ways. Let's act so as not to offend God anymore. Now, the third characteristic is what Paul calls indignation. Of course, we all know there's a a negative side to indignation, but here Paul uses the term in the most positive manner possible. I think Paul means that that there has come a righteous indignation against sin. There's a, a deep sense that sin in and of itself is repulsive. All comfort with sin has been lost, and it's replaced by an anger that sin will never be acceptable again. It was the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a a Lutheran catechism instructing new believers in the faith, and it has a question. So it would ask, what is the dying away of the old self? And the answer was, to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and to run away from it. Don't you see, that's it. Our response to sin has to be more than simply being sorry for sin, but to learn to develop a deep, and a holy hatred of sin itself. I mean, think of the most repugnant thing that you can think of. I mean, do you hate that? Well, yeah, you do. 
Now think of all sin exactly that way. Ask God to give you a manifest repugnance of sin. Fourth characteristic, fear. It's an interesting word, this word, because in chapter 7 alone, Paul uses the word fear four times, here in verse 11, then in verse 1, verse 5, and then again in verse 15. Now, to be fair, the use of the word fear in verse 5 is not in relationship to God, but rather Paul speaks of this haunting fear that things might be going badly in Corinth. But in other occurrences, he always means both fear of God and he also means fear of man not in a negative sense, but in a sense of, well, in relationship to God, we need to develop a a holy reverence. And in relationship to fellow believers, there needs to be respect and a proper concern for all, a willingness to honor all. And that's it. When the Corinthian believers repented, they regained a proper perspective, both of God and of one another. The fifth characteristic, what longing. I mean, you have to believe that when Paul speaks of longing, he's most certainly referring to the same attitude that Jesus spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. See, that's a holy longing. But you know, everyone has things in their heart that they yearn for or things they long for. You know, there are people who want money in the bank and others want peace and security and and others fame and still others, they want all the pleasures that life has to offer. But believers long for God's righteousness to be felt both in the world, in their church, and also in their individual lives. And then six, what zeal, says Paul, and others translate this as concern, but I think zeal is the best translation. There's an energy in them to see things change. And then finally, seventh, Paul speaks of the matter of punishment. I know it sounds strange, but Paul wants to punish every act of disobedience. He means that the Corinthians should be aroused to punish sin that might destroy a commitment to Christ. They should not just bemoan sin. They need to take action. I wonder if that language surprises you. Do you think that a church that doesn't tolerate sin is an intolerant place? Well, some think exactly that. They think it's loving not to confront sin. But imagine someone giving a child a glass of water laden with poison. You think it's unloving to confront that. And listen, sin is poison. June 2020, Back to the Bible Canada will be partnering with Back to the Bible India to conduct its third annual Bible teaching conference, hosting hundreds of Indian pastors across India, beginning in Delhi, then moving to Hyderabad and Chennai. Under the leadership of Dr. John Newfeld, pastors will learn the discipline of effectively teaching the Bible and sharing the gospel. This year, you can sponsor the attendance of an Indian pastor who may otherwise not have the resources to attend for only $55. It includes the cost of the conference, resources, travel, accommodations, and food. What a great investment in the church. Join us in equipping pastors in India. Call with your gift to support international initiatives or to send one or two or more pastors to the India Bible Teaching Conference this June. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit sendapastor.ca or backtothebible.ca.
We notice that Paul has been rather forthright in pointing out what it is about the revival in Corinth that brought him great joy. He has from Titus heard of their earnestness, their eagerness to get right with God, their indignation of sin, their reverent fear for God, their, their longing for holiness, their zeal to get on with it, and their, their willingness to punish sin. But after noticing those things and after pointing these matters out as marks of genuine salvation and revival, well, Paul wants now to make sure that no one thinks that these comments are intended as a sideswipe or a hidden agenda or using a bully pulpit to put someone in their place. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 to 13a says, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. You know, Paul's more than aware that that the issue at hand is sensitive. You know, if I'm right, that the key issue in the problem with Corinth was the church's refusal to use the tools of church discipline and insist on holiness, especially when a member of their church was sleeping with his stepmother. You know, if that was the issue, we can see how sensitive that was and probably still was. Yeah, the man had refused to repent originally. Yeah, the man had been disciplined, and eventually that man had been excommunicated. And yeah, by God's grace, that same man had come to his senses, and he had now repented, and he had been restored to their fellowship. And when Paul mentions the things he mentions, that is, their zeal, their willingness to punish sin, and so on, you know, it must have seemed, at least to some, that all of those painful matters that Paul is talking about is dragging up that situation all over again. So Paul wants to be very clear. Look, I'm not mentioning this so that the person who has done the wrong would feel genuine shame all over again. You might remember that Paul's already spoken to that back in chapter 2. You know, if that man has repented and been restored and forgiven, Paul says, then I also forgive this man. No, no, Paul's not taking a sideswipe at this man, and he wants the church to know it. You see, in Paul's mind, that man has been restored to fellowship, and that matter is over. So in spite of the sensitivity of this matter, a good and godly shepherd still knows that his people must always be ready to confront sin. The issue is the holiness of the church, even if the matter is sensitive. See, Paul's not interested in bringing up past sorrow, but he is interested in establishing a line of defense so that the church will not fall into rampant sin again. See, I think it's important here to stop and consider how we are to make application of that principle both to our own lives and to our own churches. Most of us know that there have been churches in the past who have disciplined people for all kinds of imagined sins. You know, when I was young, the length of a young man's hair was really important to some people, and and they applied church discipline to all those whose hair was too long. So making laws out of things in which there are no laws in the Bible, well, it's led to a great deal of harm whenever church discipline has been abused in the past. And furthermore, when there has been a real sin, how the church handles a real sin is also a matter of great concern. The principle in Matthew 18 shows us that the matter of disciplining of sin should remain on most occasions a very private matter. It only becomes a public matter when the sin has been 
objectively identified as a real sin, and when the person in question lives in callous disregard for the commands of God and and refuses to repent. But that's not the point I want to stress here. The point here is that sometimes we don't want to confront sin because the matter of confronting sin is so sensitive and so explosive and so problematic. And so we simply say, leave it alone. Maybe it'll just take care of itself. And then from the general lack of holiness in the church, we then take that same principle into our own personal lives. It's too painful to confront my own sin. Let's leave that alone as well. I mean, God will surely overlook it. And so we learn to live with sin, and we learn to put up with our lack of zeal for holiness. We learn to slide. We, we learn no longer to make personal holiness a primary issue in our lives. You know, years go by, and we don't notice and how hard and unreceptive and how dead we have become towards God. Our lives no longer look like the lives of those who died with Christ and have been raised to newness of life. And then revival, when it comes, almost always begins with a confrontation of sins that have not been addressed for some time. And here's an interesting point. Is the person who no longer deals with their own sin, with zeal and punishment, is that person genuinely saved? Look, I think it's important not to come to, you know, quick knee-jerk judgments on that matter, but I do know this. When revival comes, it does break long, entrenched patterns of indwelling sin. When Ralph and Lou Sutera preached revival in the city of Saskatoon back in 1971, the key marker of that revival was repentance. It all began with a series of meetings that was only supposed to last for 12 days. Instead, it went on for seven weeks. Walter Bolt was one of the first people to come to the front and recommit his life to God. He was one of the leading pastors in that city. And then night after night, people came forward to confess their sins. Many couples tore up their divorce papers, made new commitments of love and fidelity to one another. Two brothers, unbeknownst to each other, came to the altar for prayer. They hadn't spoken to each other in years, and when they saw each other at that altar, they fell into each other's arms and begged each other for forgiveness. The tax department in Ottawa opened up a new file for all the people from Saskatoon who voluntarily wrote in to confess that they had cheated the government out of taxes years ago. Many baptized members of churches discovered that they had never been born again, and many church members came forward and got saved. The response was overwhelming. The meetings kept growing until they filled the largest auditorium in the city twice each night. And then people stayed in that auditorium until midnight, singing, praying, worshiping. And in consequence, I think it's fair to say that those revivals changed the spiritual nature of the entire province of Saskatchewan for over a generation. That's what revival does. It confronts long-established patterns of sin and breaks that down with zeal. See, I think it's fair to say that this was the logjam that Paul saw broken in Corinth, leading to an explosion of the Christian faith, and make no mistake about it. You don't reach the people of the world by using great church growth strategies. God does not bless a gospel of sin management, making people more comfortable with their sin. And if that's you, listen to my voice. 
Christ calls you to repent and to be filled with a zeal for holiness. But let's keep reading. 2 Corinthians 7, 13 to 16, Paul completes his thought about what's been happening in Corinth. He writes, Therefore we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. (laughs) I love that part when Paul says, you know, I knew it. I had, when you weren't around and when your back was turned, I had been boasting to Titus about you. See, I was convinced that what I had said when your back was turned. See, I was convinced when I talked about the grace of God in your lives, I told Titus and it was all true. Now, of course, Paul did have his moments of great fear that perhaps he had misjudged them, but it turns out those fears weren't justified. When you weren't around, says Paul, I would talk to Titus about this church in Corinth. I told him, and you can read about it in 1 Corinthians 1, I I told him that you were sanctified in Christ Jesus. I told him how I thank God for the grace that he had given you. I told him of the testimony of Christ that was confirmed in you. And now, says Paul, turns out it was all true. And Titus, well, he has come to love you as much as I do. And he remembers your determination to be obedient. As Proverbs tells us, that when sin is confronted, the wounds of a faithful friend are good. And when your backs are turned, that faithful friend only speaks well of you. 2 Corinthians, the story of a very weak Apostle Paul, and the story of an incredibly strong gospel and an incredibly strong God. John, I love the story you told about Walter Bolt and his recommitment of his life to God. What does it mean for us to recommit ourselves? Yeah, we all have to recommit ourselves. It's on a regular basis. We need to, you know, be the first one at the altar. Be the first one to say, Lord, help me not to get accustomed to, you know, a dull spirit or um, besetting sin of some sort. Uh, Lord, wake me anew all the time. Um, I think that's That's something that that we need to strive for and be ready for and ask God to revive us again. Thanks so much, John. And thanks for joining us for this series, Power in Weakness. And remember to join us again next week as we begin another new series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Bible Canada is all about Bible teaching. That's our passion, our legacy, and our continued mission. Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld studies, prepares, and presents a verse-by-verse understanding of the Bible, and God is changing lives. So we're excited to announce a brand new resource for 2020, the Back to the Bible Canada Study Series. It's a six-week Bible study video series designed for personal and small group use. Bible teaching at its finest that includes Bible teaching videos, discussion questions, and notes that engage the participant in a verse-by-verse study and greater understanding of the Bible. This series will be made available on the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel and by visiting backtothebible.ca. And remember, every resource is available for free as the result of partners like you. 
Your gift is so appreciated. To learn more or to give today, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.